This is former World Wrestling Federation superstar Duke the Dumpster Drosy, and you are listening to BBGWrestling.com. It's time to take out the trash. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to what I am now calling the Pablo and Duke Primetime Improv Variety Hour. Uh, I am Pablo, and with me is the one and the only Duke the Dumpster Drossy. It is always a pleasure to be able to chat with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be back, finally, after a, a year and a half hiatus since my last appearance. But yes, I'm definitely here and ready to go, and uh, we can do some ad-libbing and some uh, taking Singing? out some trash. Yeah, we could sing. We could do a musical number. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> well, the thing is, last time, um, I was the first interview you did after some guy called Steve. Um, Never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he took all my questions, the bastard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you've, you've been on social media now. I mean, was this like about a year ago, your first sort of uh, move onto social media? Um or were you kind of incognito before then? I was definitely incognito. Um, I've often told the story how I went from, for many years, I had about 175 friends on Facebook. And then with that one fateful appearance, I finally ended up agreeing to in Middle Tennessee at a high school fundraiser everything changed people started asking me questions and i started accepting friend requests from fans and it blew up to like 2500 people within like a couple of weeks and then 5000 it maxed out really fast and um but yeah when we when last time we when we uh did the watch along right yeah did. for Royal rumble 95 no, yeah that Royal rumble that's right yeah um i was just getting ready to start out with this studio and in, in in georgia here and uh i mean unfortunately it kind of didn't work out too well but um i, I was still pretty new to social media and kind of finding my way and these guys you know kind of had brought me in they were wanting me to do a podcast with them and but um yeah it was a lot different i mean i'm still having fun with it that's for sure so yeah, and um, with uh, social media side, did you think that – because the thing is that I think the sort of intrigue and the interest in, you know, the past basically, you know, is kind of at an all-time high because of, you know, stuff like the encyclopedia and the fact that all of the uh, footage is accessible and all kinds of merchandise and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, were you, were you expecting that or, or were you kind of made aware of how – Recept positively receptive everyone would be to you showing up on social media not even remotely close i was not even i had no idea i was very very skittish about getting on and interacting with fans because i was kind of still worried about all the crap i had gotten into and the trouble i'd gotten into in tennessee and i really wasn't wanting to show my face and talk too much to people and uh they were so nice that uh, it made me comfortable right away to get out there and really start interacting with the fans. Um, but yeah, it's been this, this, uh, 
new kind of, well, I don't know how long it's been going on now, but it's this kind of newfound interest uh, in looking back and being nostalgic over those uh, eras in the 80s and 90s, especially right now, but even the 70s or early 2000s, people are looking back on all those. And I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of the complaints you hear from wrestling fans about the wrestling product and the way it is right now, uh, I guess they, they, they often through their complaints often make the comment that I wish they would say, I wish it was the way it was back when, you know, whenever, you know, usually it's like the attitude era, Mm. but that's what you're hearing a lot of. And I've been enjoying it. You know, I'm loving kind of going back and, and it's just interesting how it's happened because wrestling fans have come to me. Like today I had a guy that, that just out of the blue, we weren't even friends on Facebook. He messaged messengered me a picture of me signing an autograph for him when he was a kid. And it just reminded me of a story. And that's what happens a lot. People are sending me pictures and like old posters and, and stuff like that. And it reminds me of stories and I just keep telling these stories and people seem to love it. So I'm, again, I'm just having fun, man. I'm not really trying to be rich and famous anymore. Like I thought I wanted to be when I was a wrestler. I'm just having fun, man. Interacting with these folks. Who, who sent you that raw poster that I saw today? Cause that is something I would frame the shit out of on my wall. Uh, Craig, Weber was the guy's name and he was the one I was talking about. He sent first he sent me a picture of me signing an autograph for him. And it was when I was relatively new because I remember the specific watch I was wearing and I still had long hair and all that and you could tell I still kind of had a smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was kind of new and uh, it reminded it wasn't the, the story wasn't about him but it reminded me of a story when I was signing an autograph actually on a t-shirt also in this kid was giving me this whole story about how I was his famous, his, you know, favorite wrestler. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, cause like I said, I was still new and he was telling me how I was his favorite wrestler and all these great things and, da, 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 and I'm signing this t-shirt and I get finished signing it and he looks at it and he kind of frowns at me and he goes, Oh, I thought you were Adam bomb. <laughs> <laughs> man some of these kids will humble you so fast it is hilarious and that was one of those instances and uh yeah you kind of you got to have a thick skin because some of them kids they don't care man they just tell you exactly what's on their mind there's no there's no filter whatsoever it just comes out and you're like oh so yeah that was but uh the raw thing i made the joke today was it was a card that I was on. This person was telling me who I wrestled and everything at this place in Fernwood, the Fernwood resort or wherever it was. But yeah. my name wasn't on the poster. And I, I went through this whole long spiel in my story. I was talking about how, yeah, I was, I was so impressed with how the world wrestling Federation pushed, pushed Duke, the dumpster Drossy at all times. And they made me feel very important and all these great things. And if you look very closely, you can see me in a very prominent position in this poster it says and other many other great matches (laughs) (laughs) that was my calling sign on most posters i was many other great matches did you never think of changing your name to many others duke drossi and then you would have been many other great matches (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i would have had a better push i think but yeah that was that was kind of the way it was we always had a joke guys like me and bob holly and adam bomb and stuff when we were kind of stuck in those opening to mid card spots 
we we had that joke that that was our nickname. We were many other plus many other matches or however they would word it at different times. So yeah. What was the thinking like at that time though? Because with a, a, a very definite sort of character, um, did you feel that it kind of required you to be in a feud with someone who was like the opposite of that character for it to work? Or because the thing is like Duke Drosy, Duke the Dumpster Drosy when you dig a little deeper is the the working man and he's meant to represent everyone and stuff like that do you feel that that wasn't exploited enough well uh i actually thought i could work with anybody and uh as a matter of fact there was a period of time in 95 to 96 where i would on many occasions i begged vince mcmahon to put me in a program with henry o godwin the hog farmer Mm. which would have basically been two kind of working class, you know, and he was a heel at the time and I was a baby face. But um, I think Vince's vision of the character was always the working class, hardworking, working class kind of character going up against some more privileged, you know, like first it was Jerry the King Lawler, it was Triple H. And he would always put me in those kinds of matches and situations because I think that's how he viewed it. But um, I was always wrong. Anybody. Do you think that was like a genuine thing from his side? Because I know you had the the uh, Rocco Gibraltar um, character going on anyway, but you, it wasn't just a case of, oh, we'll make him a chicken, we'll make him a man cow. You know, it was like in his mind, there was like this story, like this reason why this person was this way. I think I definitely made it easy for him when I when I walked up to him at that convention because I dropped right in his lap. I dropped the perfect character for him. You know, he loves, I remember one day we were at a TV taping and he came up to me and he started talking to me about Duke the dumpster. And he said, uh, what I envisioned for you, we used to have a guy, he says to me, we used to have a character here by the name of Hillbilly Jim. I don't know if you remember him. And I'm like, of course I remember Hillbilly Jim. He goes, that's what we want you to be. He wanted me to be Hillbilly Jim. And, you know, I kind of took it like I was I was glad that he was thinking of my character, first of all. But at the same time, um, I don't know. I, I just kind of envisioned, as we all do at that level, we envision ourselves and hopefully pushing up to the main event status at some point in time mm-hmm. in some way. But, um, yeah, that's what he told me. He said he wanted me to be a, a uh, Hillbilly Jim. And, of course, I was kind of doing the cross between hillbilly jim and hacksaw jim duggan and i don't know what else but that's kind of how it came out and uh yeah i dropped the perfect gimmick in his lap he didn't have to do much work in fact they didn't even change the the costume really at all except to cover up my first gimmick because i still had the name tag rocco and they put duke the dumpster on the weight belt i used to wear but that was it did, did, were you happy with I mean I, and I'm sure you will have talked about this but were you happy with the name because obviously you know you were happy with the character because that's what you were portraying anyway did you want to continue to be Rocco Gibraltar because that I guess lends itself more to higher up the card as a name if you get what I mean like yeah I, but I understood I understood how it worked in that respect I knew they they wanted to Vince wanted to change it enough so it was his, especially in terms of licensing and ownership of you know intellectual property. It, you know, even though I I owned the character without the name, you know, all the likeness and stuff like that was mine. So they can't 
that could never take that. And I, and I even wrote it into the initial contract that way because I saw it on the back page. It had an open space for intellectual property, and I wrote in all the Rocco Gibraltar stuff. Um, did that? So yeah. give you, did that give you heat with him when you were kind of? How dare you have actual some actual business savvy? <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I don't even know if he even he didn't ever he never even talked to me about the contract. That was something I did with JJ Dillon. And when I mentioned it, it was it kind of you could tell it kind of threw him for a loop for a second. But he says, "Yeah, sure, just put yeah whatever you whatever you want. That's fine. <laughs> you know whatever you have, whatever you want." Uh, as far as the stuff you used to do, so uh, I did, and I I mean I don't need think it's a big deal but you know they changed the name because one they wanted it to be more cartoonish and uh have like that alliter alliteration property to it like duke the dumpster drossy so people can you know it's it's kind of catchy um and, and of course they want to own it so yeah that's kind of how that went down so um with you mentioned the the firm would uh, resort the was it was it like holiday resort did you get to use like the the jacuzzi <laughs> like because you were there like every week it seemed well i that place i can't really remember if it was like that i remember there was a place in the poconos that we went and did an appearance at for man it seemed like we were there a week it was there was an appearance a bunch of us went to me and Fatu and Mr. Perfect and the one, two, three kid and some other people. And I just kind of got onto it by accident because it was a pay. They, they paid for this appearance and I was never one to get any paid appearances. I was always sent on the free stuff as mm. uh, Scott Hall used, as Razor Ramon used to always say, send Duke. He likes to do those, but <laughs> I, yeah, it's we a, were a good impression. Poconos, yeah. yeah. And po the Poconos we did, this appearance and each of us had our own honeymoon suite that had two floors. It had an indoor pool and like, and, and then it had uh, like a living room area. And then you go up these stairs and there was a big round bed with very, very red bedding on it with mirrors on the ceiling above it. And then right to next to the bed, there was a hot tub that was actually this huge champagne glass that went from the bottom floor to the top floor. And uh, that's, we each had one of those to ourselves out here in the middle of the, out there and the, wherever it was in Pennsylvania in the middle of a blizzard. Actually, I remember that too. There was a blizzard and uh, <laughs> a bunch of people that paid to come meet us for a few days or a week or whatever. But, you know, we, so also, we always did weird things like that, you know, the Poconos or different resorts or stuff like that. So. So that was like a, a corporate thing. Did you put on a wrestling show for like a kid's birthday party or something like that? Or No, we would just uh, we would go in and do appearances. There was a room with a band in it and stuff, and they were all sitting in like an audience section. And we kind of sat off to the side at our own little table. And at different times, we would just kind of mingle with the fans. I think at one point we were riding uh, snowmobiles out there and some of them were coming around and. It was just kind of different, but uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it wasn't, a, I don't think it was a corporate thing. I think it was the resort through it for, uh, maybe they did a package for wrestling fans to kind of come, you know, like they used to do the cruises and the wrestle yes. vessel things. Yeah. I think this was the same kind of concept, but it was, 
in the winter to bring people out to this resort that maybe nobody would have gone to that time of year. And they did their whole wrestling appearance plan with it, probably. When when you did these appearances, like autograph signings, because you can do it feasibly because you have like, you're not wearing trunks. You know, were you always in gimmick sort of thing for those? No, no. Actually, more times than not, we were not in gimmick. But um, I think we wore our gimmicks at the Pocono when we were actually in there with the fans. But um, no, for the most part, we, we were in street clothes. They would send us somewhere. Like, I remember one time me and Shawn Michaels last minute, we went to a McDonald's in the middle of somewhere, like in New York, like in Queens or Brooklyn or something. And it was before a Madison Square Garden show. And I think I think they put me on it last minute and Sean was running late. And they may have sent me ahead of him because he wasn't there yet. And I went and uh, kind of kept the people calm and signed some autographs. And then he finally showed up. But it was always kind of in street clothes, uh, you know, unless it was some special instance where they wanted us in gimmicks or like if it was like the fan fest or access, they were calling it before WrestleMania, then the access fan access where we would a lot of times we would go out and, and gimmick for that. But even then we would go out in street clothes quite a bit to sit down and sign at different tables were the were the uh, fan fests long days because you you were there you must have been there for three of them 94 95 96 um and well no i mean were you there at the mania 10 one because you came in no, right I, after that I, yeah yeah i think i i can't remember how it worked i think i tried out right before it and then got hired and came in right after it so were you you must have been at the hall of fame that year were you in the audience in tuxedo and everything? No, no not for WrestleMania 10. No, no, for, it was at uh, it was at King of the Ring, um, the first oh, banquet wait. like Hall of Fame. Um, they did the no, King I of was Ring. not. Was that was that where they uh, the the only uh, person to get in that year was Andre? No, uh, Andre got in in '93 right after he died, and oh. then '94 was kind of um, oh, who was it? It was like Gorilla and Blassie. I mean, the real old school Bobo Brazil. Um, and then '95, it was like Pedro Morales, but he didn't come, so Savio inducted him. And um, you know, it, but the the one funny thing about '94 because I think that's when James Dudley got inducted, and the the footage showed up on the network recently. Um, <laughs> he's kind of sat next to Vince. But James is so bored by everything that's going on that he's actually reading that month's WWF magazine, like, and he's like facing the audience as well. Like, so again, yeah. When they're not televised, I can imagine that that was probably a long night. <laughs> long, long, long night. I mean, I remember the one where we did the slammies and I, just sitting there, and they don't want you to get up and go anywhere. Like, if you have to get up and go take a piss or something, they're like, oh, you know, they don't want you to go anywhere. It's kind of like. They're, they're trying to treat it as a real like award show or something like the Oscars or something. But um, did they I give you booze for that? Did they give you booze for that? Uh, I don't think so. No, <laughs> I think they, Vince was too smart for that. <laughs> yeah, we would have torn that place down probably. <laughs> um, so the, I just showed you um, a few days ago the um, the baseball uh, tickets from WrestleMania 12, the Hollywood All Stars against the WWF. <laughs> Superstars. Yeah. Um, and there are pictures of you out there and there's footage of you as well on the on the mania 12 uh, video um and what was that like do you remember much about that like did you want to do it <laughs> or were you like forced to do it <laughs> well we were forced to do it but i didn't mind i was still kind of gung-ho then even but we yeah. were 
Well, actually, I, I take that back. I was kind of pissed off. I remember because I saw a picture of me and Steve Austin talking to each other in the lobby or something, and you could tell I had kind of just quit working out, and I was just disgusted with all the whole situation. But I was happy to go out and do the the um, softball game. And if you want, there was recently like a a fan video that somebody posted on my page and I reposted it, but it shows me running around with a little camcorder, you know, recording at the softball game. And it's funny because they originally wanted to call that the trash cam, uh, and have me constantly doing stuff behind the scenes. And I had started taping things and, uh, they were going to call, they were calling it the trash cam. And I think, they only showed it maybe one time and they also showed as part of it, they kind of showed me doing the impersonations, but then shortly after that, they turned it into the click cam. Ooh. Is that and, how that, uh, that's how that happened? Doc? That is exactly because then the next week, Shawn Michaels was out there with a camcorder getting up on the ring post film, filming the fans. Yeah. So that's how that's, that went down. That is bullshit. I love that you've kept the uh, trash cam uh, name to this day though. And uh, use it on Facebook. Yes, absolutely. I had to keep using it and bring it back from the dead. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I was kind of wondering, like, did you do many tag matches when you were in WWF? Because I saw footage recently. It was like of an international taping where you faced uh, Steve Dahl. Um, and it was a it was a cool little match. Uh, and, you know, it's a shame that it wasn't on Raw or something like that. Like, did you, like, team up against... Like the bodies and well done and all those kind no, of things? No, not, I mean, not a lot. I, I will say the, there was very few times. Matter of fact, I only really remember being in a tag team once with Bob Holly, and it was on TV versus uh, Owen and Davey. Mm. Um, we did a tag match for TV, and I remember doing a series of six-man tags where it was me and the Bushwhackers against... Isaac Yankum, Leaf Cassidy, and the One Two Three Kid. Uh, we that, did three shows with a dartboard. You couldn't pick more random six man yeah. tags. <laughs> yeah, they just threw a bunch of guys that, on there and put them in I, one match together to get it over with quickly. That's a shame because that, that's the thing that I kind of love about that time when you just see characters who would never really interact with each other, but then you see like there's a house show with Goldust against Yokozuna, which is just like that never happened on TV. Um, yeah, you know, well, when you when you see stuff like that, it was usually it was generally a situation where they were trying something out mm-hmm. to decide if they wanted to go with it on TV or even further for like an angle for pay per view. Uh, they would try different guys together on house shows, and uh, depending on how it went or how the agent said it went, they would make a decision on if they were going to let those people work together. You know, and I'm sure during that Gold Dust Yoko thing, Yoko had just turned babyface, so. They were trying to figure out what people they wanted to put Yoko with. Was there any worry with Yoko as he kept kind of putting on the weight? Or was it just kind of like, was it noticeable that he was like struggling? Because you wouldn't tell in the ring, to be honest. Um, yeah. Did anyone, like say anything big. to him? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they said anything. I mean, rumor was they had spoken to him. Matter of fact, when he turned babyface, um, he was doing a lot of business for. Uh, some heels on his way out the door. In fact, the last person I think he did, basically, you want to call it a job, but he got jumped by Vader to where they had to carry him off with a, a damn 
like a, a forklift yeah. um, on TV. But that was the, that was right when they were going to send him off to, uh, you know, some kind of a diet system place or a fat camp, whatever you want to call it. They wanted him to lose weight. Uh, and that was the word that came down and th- that's how they kind of handled it. He did some business on the way out the door and they were sending him off just to hopefully he would drop weight, but he really didn't. He, uh, he would not, he, I don't know. He just wouldn't do it. And, uh, he got bigger and bigger and bigger and I don't think they ever really brought him back. No, that, yeah. The, um, the, the story that I've heard from, uh, Cornette was that, like this apparently people were sneaking food into the fat camp for him because every time he would return it was always bigger and yeah. I, you know they, they, i guess they did a good job of saying you know he's bigger than ever he's mightier etc but um it it is a shame because i think they kept him under contract for like a year after his last tv appearance and um i, just I mean don't he think- was an amazing talent and he was mm. great he moved so unbelievably well you know, for such a big man. And, but he did finally start getting to the point where he was so big that it was starting to affect. And I remember I would see him, we would, you know, we kind of all hang out together different places and hotels and stuff like that. And there were occasions where, uh, we would go to his hotel room, me and a couple of the other boys to just hang out there. And, uh, and he would be sitting on the bed and he would, talk about how he he was at a point where he had to sleep sitting up because the sleep apnea was so bad it would freaking kill him he'd stop breathing so at the end there he was sitting sleeping up uh in the hotels even while he was still working for wwf wow wow did do you feel that um was the kind of like a, a camaraderie around any of the any of the boys who were having troubles like that at the time yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, there was a lot of us, uh, I think the boys in general would support each other for the most part. I mean, there was some people that didn't, but you mm-hmm. know, it was what it was, but, um, it just depended on the situation. I remember there was a situation where, I uh, mean, I think we were in Tampa and it was interesting to see how the kind of chips fell, but, uh, it was, it was Tatanka. And his wife was with him for this. I think it was a pay-per-view or a TV taping. And the rumor was, this is what I heard, uh, he was getting sent home because somebody saw her rolling a joint in the car. That is what people, the boys were saying. And that was just a rumor. I didn't know if there was any truth to it. But what was interesting, whether it was true or not, and I don't know, what was interesting was to see the reaction of all the different boys uh, that worked for the company at the time. You know, a lot of the, especially like the underneath to mid card guys were very supportive and, and voicing it like out loud saying it was bullshit that he's getting sent home and it wasn't even him and he hasn't failed the drug test. And yeah. But then as you moved up the ladder, it was interesting. You, the guys like Bret Hart and especially Brett, Brett said, man, I think it's wrong, but I'm not going to quit my job over it. And, uh, Shawn Michaels, I think was saying he was going to support Chris, uh, Tatanka in the situation, but I don't know how much he really did, but it's just interesting to see the different, uh, characters and how they react in real life situations. And, uh, that was one of them. Um, I always found that, you know, uh, it seemed to me that the lower to mid card guys always rallied around each other more 
you know, because those main event guys got those main event spots in some instances by maybe stabbing some people in the back and they, they weren't going to do anything to jeopardize that spot because they were there. They didn't want to lose it. But yeah, it was always interesting to see how people reacted. I mean, there were, there were guys like Tatanka and Yokozuna who were earlier on higher up the card or much higher up the card, um, like world champion in some cases. So like, were they kind of becoming disillusioned or disenfranchised with like WWF in particular, or were they happy still to be there and thinking they could get back up the card in some way? Cause it, it kind of feels like at the time, once someone had had that main event push, it was only a matter of time before they were going to be gone sort of thing. Or, or if they were lucky, maybe a gimmick change or a heel turn or something like that. But once Tatanka turned heel and the feud with Luger happened, he just kind of became a, a guy in the corporation and he didn't stand out because of that. Like, did, did he want to turn heel? Like from what you remember? I, I think he had stalled as a baby face, even with, even with, I, in my opinion, probably the push of Chief J. Strongbow behind him because he was kind of Chief's boy since he was the Native American character. Yeah. Um, it seemed like he went to bat for him a lot. But even as a babyface, it seemed like Tatanka had kind of, kind of run its course. And it was one of those situations where they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with him. And somebody came up with the idea to, turn him heel and the way they did it was pretty interesting with him and Lex Luger where it seemed like Luger was the one that was getting bought off by DiBiase and then the final swerve was the guy nobody ever thought would turn heel Tatanka turned heel um but it's one then of, I, 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 go for it sorry I was just gonna say just like you said um it it seemed like then he just became another member of the corporation and those guys were kind of used interchangeably to either get other people over or maybe have a little bit of shine beating the lower guy like me. But, <laughs> you know, I would, God knows I would wrestle like a King Kong Bundy or a Bam Bam Bigelow. I didn't have a chance in hell of winning, but um, it was just strange. Yeah. He did just become another member of the corporation at that point when he was a heel. It's a shame because the, the the heel the Tatanka heel turn is still one of my favorites of all time because, I mean, one it was it was done so flawlessly, but the crowd was so, like, hot at that SummerSlam and Vince and Jerry like Vince could do disgusted, like better than anyone like he was personally offended. I can't Tatanka. believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did that was, very well. And Jerry was just, you know, top of his game as well. Um, you know, for, it was all good stuff. And I don't know the timing as far as far as, you know, because he was hot. And those people were pissed. And I don't know the timing as to when whatever happened happened that turned the office, on, you know, turned them off on him, and he was getting ready to go home or whatever they were going to be doing or how they were going to do it. But um, that might have played a role in it too. Something went wrong. Somebody got in trouble somewhere. But you know, it was such a good turn, man. And they did it. You know, so many times they do things that they don't do very well, and that was done really well for Lex and for for uh, Tatanka. And then it just seemed to kind of fizzle out afterwards. You know, like their their opponent choices were not good. He should have. He could have had a really strong main event run you know with some of the top baby faces but i don't know for some reason it just didn't happen do you, do you think by that point i mean the the general 
and and because don't get me wrong i love that time like more than anything but the general kind of consensus is that the wheels fell off luger a little bit by that point after you know the, not winning the title etc it was it, it, today's point of view is that sort of wwf didn't have the faith in him that he could carry the company as champion and stuff like that so was it kind of you know tatanka with dbrc could have done something for a longer period of time but luger maybe wasn't over enough by that point i mean like maybe that's why they had to put him in the team with uh davy by that point i yeah and i think they were finding some trying to find some way to you know use him because um i think a couple things happened with luger's big lex express babyface run one i think at some point well let me back up in my opinion, I grew I grew up, I want to say I grew up, but I was kind of in high school and breaking into the business, and I was watching championship wrestling from Florida because that's where I grew up. I grew up in Miami, Florida, and mm-hmm. Lex was a very big part. He came in with Hiro Matsuda, and he was with like kind of like Rick Rude was involved, and they were both very young, and uh, it was a very young Lex Luger. And he got pushed in many big, high, uh, he got pushed in many main event spots, like with Ric Flair and all these other things. And um, it seemed like the office was always pushing him. Uh, it almost, it, it was like the office was kind of completely responsible for his push. Uh, he showed up with that body and he could work well enough and got over, but, you know, as far as really speaking to the people, I don't think he ever had done that. So when he got to the WWF um, and they decided to push him as a babyface, I think maybe he was still in that mode where he was expecting the office to, to do the majority of the work and getting him over. Yeah. And he didn't realize at some point you got to pick up the ball and really take some responsibility and get those people out, you know, buying tickets and showing up to shows um so maybe that wasn't his strong suit and uh at some point the office went they like they do many times they turn sour on it and once they do you're done you know once they say now this isn't working then you're done and you if you get another chance you're very lucky but usually nine times out of ten people don't get another chance to prove themselves they just kind of wallow along and you know, mid-card status, doing some jobs, or if they get lucky enough to be put in a tag team match like he was, that worked for a while. But I think he was at that point he was disillusioned and got frustrated, and and you know they pushed him down so far that he wasn't making good money anymore, and uh, he made the jump to WCW. But yeah, that's that was my opinion of Luger and kind of how he came. From Florida to, you know, WCW and or NWA, WCW into the WWF, uh, I think maybe subconsciously he expected the office to do everything and get him over. Uh, and they did quite a bit. But at some point, you know, you've got to be a very charismatic <laughs> character. you got to get people in the door. And I don't think he, I think that's where he came up short. Um, and again... I think the office turned sour on him, and I, I, don't, I think maybe people like in the click kind of helped that process along too, with the yeah. office being sour on him. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, do, do you feel that there's um, too much emphasis on people being shocked when WWF and WWE kind of get rid of someone? Because, I mean, you know, the territory system, no one lasted forever in a territory anyway. They kind of moved to a different territory. Is it because more, I mean, WWF obviously is top of the mountain by this point, but there were a lot of other viable options at that point, like Smoky Mountain was still around, or Memphis, or ECW, or, um, of, of course, WCW. So, I mean, was it kind of, it wasn't seen as end of the world sort of thing if someone was let go, or if someone knew that the time was coming up? Not for most of those guys who had worked in a lot of those other territories before that point, and uh, they had connections and, and relationships with people that were still there in those other territories for lack of a better term uh or the people in ownership or management but like for me for example i didn't know anybody i didn't know anybody to get in the wwf it was just a fluke i freaking walked up to vince mcmahon um so and i didn't work my i mean my plan was to work my way through all these remaining territories you know memphis and all these other places and i think texas might have still barely been hanging on and of course maybe wcw or what was going on in Florida, but uh, it never happened because I kind of just jumped past all that by walking up to Vince at a convention. So I didn't have those connections. So for me, when I ended up leaving, at least in my mind, I didn't have a lot of options because I didn't know anybody. I had to kind of start, you know, politicking my way in through the door, which I did try to do in WCW. But to answer your question again, you know, for Lex, he definitely had more options than I did coming out of there and the, leaving the way he did. Of course, Eric Bischoff tells the story that he didn't want Le- Lex, but Sting convinced him to kind of hire him. But um, I still think he had more options. So, uh, you know, and see, the funny thing about ECW that you mentioned, you know, there wasn't a lot of money to be made in Smoky Mountain and stuff like that. And of course, Polly, I don't think was paying much in ECW, but mm-hmm it was getting really hot. He had good TV and he had a hot crowd, but ECW at that point was kind of frowned upon by a lot of us in WWF and WCW. It was kind of frowned upon because it was still very new. And it was this new crazy style of hardcore that, you know, old school type wrestling minds did not uh, respect. And, uh, you know, kind of, I was of that opinion. Now looking back, I wish I'd have tried to, take a shot at getting into the ECW, but that was the main mentality. Uh, but you know, some guys like your stone cold, Steve Austin or well, stunning Steve Austin went through there on his way to the WWF, you know, your cactus jacks and people like that. So. And the thing is Austin didn't, it wasn't taking, you know, he wasn't having barbed wire, you know, rope matches and stuff like that. He, I always found that, you know, you could always make something out of yourself in ECW if you had an angle behind it. And usually the angle was hating the place that you just came from, sort of, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, yeah, 90% of what he was doing there was those promos. <laughs> My God. So, yeah. You know, you know Pillman, you know, and, and I know he got injured and everything uh, while he was there, but, um, you know, he made one of the biggest impacts ever in ECW and didn't have a match and you know um did did you get to see Pullman much when he came up because it was kind of you were kind of two ships passing in the night at that point yeah he was just coming in right before i left and he was there and he had a you could tell he just had surgery i think he had pins in his foot and he was on a cast and crutches mm-hmm. um very nice guy i mean a really nice guy uh you know he, sometimes you even as one of the boys 
you forget uh, that all of this is a work. And you see guys like a Pillman on TV who works his gimmick and character so well, well, well that he has you believing that he's this crazy loose cannon. And then you meet him. And, and for me, I was quite shocked because I've totally bought his character when he came from WCW and ECW. I bought it. Yeah. I was like, this guy's got to be crazy to pull it off like that. But he was the nicest guy. Uh, one of the nicest guys I ever met. Um, you know, so he was uh, real good. I love Pillman. Uh, I'm such a such a fan. I got to interview his son. Uh, he's oh like, my god, what a, another great guy! Yeah, I've met him at a bunch of signings and stuff. What a great kid, man. He's yeah. Uh, oh, you, you get goosebumps future. as well. You get goosebumps as well because like I watch, you know, I'm I'm not like that old and like the the scheme of things is like a wrestling fan or anything. But like you know, WCW made a huge impact in the UK in the early '90s because they presented themselves as like an alternative. I mean, they were the alternative to WWF, but they also became the cheaper alternative. So like the action figures were cheaper. Uh, the VHS yeah. were cheaper. It was on a channel that more people could access. And um, it really made a splash over here. And Pillman was, uh, was a big part of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I like, and it constantly blows my mind like that. I get it. I don't know how I've done it, to be honest. I'm kind of like you coming into WWF with no context. I kind of just like, ask wrestlers and hope for the best. And some of them tell me to fuck off, but you know, um, I'm not yeah, There's always going to be those guys. <laughs> but the thing is though, there's that many podcasts out there, um, which so I don't blame them. And you know, a lot of them, yeah, I don't know if mine's better or worse than some, but you know, I, I well, I know it's better than some. <laughs> oh, it I, absolutely is. I'll tell you that because, and it's funny <laughs> that we were talking earlier about you, but you being one of my early, podcast experiences because you were when i was first getting back in because for a long time when i came back i was back for a while telling these stories but i was not accepting any interview <laughs> people were hitting me up all the time on facebook for interviews and podcasts and i just i was not comfortable at, at, at that point with it uh so you were probably one of the earliest um but Did man, you... I've experienced some real bad ones since we worked <laughs> together a year and a half ago. I'm gonna tell you. That's the thing. I'll not try to get better. I'll just stay as I am, and then all the shit ones will come up behind me and will knock me up the, the you know, the pecking order. Yeah, they'll just push you up the ladder. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. That's the only way that I get guests now is on rec recommendations. If I interview, say, I interviewed um, Fred Ottman this week, and um, another he, great guy. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's the thing. I'm, and I've interviewed some people who have reputations, I would say, and have been nice to me i mean ahmed johnson and and i know the stories you know but he was he was he gave me like four hours of his time and you know oh, you, that's have, great. you have to like potentially take some of the things he said with a pinch of salt but like so yeah, you know um same with sid um <laughs> as well right. I, I think people were more impressed that i could just randomly get sid uh to agree to anything i think that i mean what impressive. I've been very tempted to just like, because I have so many wrestlers on Skype now, is just put you all in a group chat. <laughs> oh, wow. See, see what happens. Boy, that would be a show. Because, <laughs> I mean, there's Austin Idol, there's Kevin Sullivan. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But the thing is, I try not to, um, I, I, you know, personally, because I'm, I'm a fan, and I know there are interviewers who are there to sort of, you know, go on shit-digging expeditions. You know, I, I'm... I try not to be like that because I don't want to, you know, I, 
I, I think you can get too personal with podcast interviews. Like, has what has people have people ever asked you something that has like totally offended you and you just wouldn't answer? You know what? The answer to that is no, because I go in telling people, they ask me, they say, what's off limits? I don't have anything that's off limits because, you know, the worst of the worst for me was the situation where I got arrested with the drugs and all that shit. And uh, honestly, it's been a large part of me coming back to talk about it. I've kind of needed to do that. And when people, you know, when we do podcasts and people, uh, they ask me if there's anything that's off limits, I immediately say, no, there's nothing off limits. Um, I've never had a question that offended me. Um, I've never even had a question that made me uncomfortable. Kind of, I'm kind of that easygoing with stuff. Have you, um, have, you, have you ever shot yourself in the ring? I haven't. No, I haven't. Oh, well, no, hold on. <laughs> you know, come close. I've come close. And I'll tell you why. Because back in those days, man, one of the early meal replacement shakes was Metarex. And it came in these little pouches. <laughs> and, man, if you did too many of those over the course of a day, let's just say you could get the fucking scoots real bad, the diarrhea shits. And uh, I've come close. I've uh-huh. come close. I remember one time, though, I was wrestling Savio and down in Florida and uh, – uh, it was hot as hell. We were at this this uh, Indian uh, reservation casino, this uh, the Mikasuki Casino down in Florida, and um, they had an outside building for like concerts and stuff. But it was a very hot Miami, Florida night, and uh, they had the bay doors open. It wasn't air conditioned in there. We, that's where we were wrestling, and I was sweating profusely in the Duke the Dumpster outfit, and. Uh, Apparently, I was quite literally sweating my ass off because Salvio looked behind me and he goes, he goes, what the fuck is it all wet back there for? <laughs> and I just started laughing. I just said, what the fuck did you just say? And he said it again. He said, it's all wet back there. But uh, I did not shit myself on that occasion. But, uh, man, we all have. We all have. Anybody tells you they haven't, they're liars. Or they just, you know, you could have the damn stomach flu because – that's the way it was back then. It didn't matter if you were sick, hurt. It didn't matter if you had diarrhea. You had to get out there, man. And, uh, yeah, many of us have uh, had that situation go down. And I'm not ashamed to say it. Yep, I've been one of them. <laughs> what is the most ill that you've been in a match? Uh, you see, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. But I will say I was shit-faced drunk when I wrestled King Kong Bundy for an independent <laughs> down in, in, or in Canada. Uh, yeah, ICW. It was ICW, and it was in Canada. And uh, did, did, man. That, did that improve the match with him, though? <laughs> oh, no, it was still the shits. We, we got in there and faced off, and he goes, Jesus Christ, you smell like a brewery. And uh, – because yeah, I'd been drinking vodka the whole back in the locker room. They were feeding us liquor. What a freaking stupid thing to do! But <laughs> and then on top of that, right. and on top of that, the beginning of the show took forever because they had these local radio station guys wrestling in a match, and they didn't, had no concept of time. So we were all sitting back there for what seemed like forever, and I was just pounding these drinks. So I was hammered when I got, luckily I worked heel and uh, so I didn't have to act like a baby face or nothing. I worked with Bundy. He was the baby face. I can't I imagine was that. Heel. <laughs> oh, hey, it went over well though. I was shocked, but yeah, I was drunk and I've been sick on many occasions. I had a hole in my side. One time I had a cyst removed and this guy just 
did it in Miami, Florida one day. He cut it out in his office. He just shot it with like Novocaine or something. But he just closed it with butterfly, regular butterfly, not real stitches, but butterfly uh, bandages. Uh-huh. And then I had to go do the tent tour up in the Northeast, you know, like Rhode Island and all these places and up in the Northeast United States with Jean Pierre Lafitte. Yeah, you know PCO, and you know he's flying all over the place. So I got this hole in my side under my armpit, about three inches long, and uh, yeah, I, I've been in the ring in interesting situations. Is it you? I mean, considering the time that you were there and no blood policy and anything like that. I mean, did you did you bleed accidentally ever in WWF? No, no maybe my hands and arms would get caught up in something and start bleeding, but no, not from my head. I never. That's good going. Yeah, they kept it pretty. You couldn't hit each other with stuff. So it seems it seems like only the sort of because Brett. I mean, there's a couple of times where Brett um, bled uh, hard way, um, but he was able to pass it off as um, an accident. And whether Vince believed it or not is, you know, one thing or another. But he was also the main event, so I guess he could get away with it. But Oh, they knew better. They knew that he did it on purpose. And uh, <laughs> I don't even think on one occasion it was him versus uh, Davy Boy. That yes. was, And I was riding with him at the time. And uh, I think he told me he the way that they did it, he it wasn't hard way. Uh, Davy just threw him into the railing. But the thing is, Davy threw him into the railing and immediately turned and blocked the camera. And he took his own bump. But he said he had the blade in his cheek inside his mouth oh and, uh, yeah and then he did it and uh but they went back and they looked and apparently they somebody said they could see where he did it because they watched that fucking film meticulously in slow motion and uh they really watched because they wanted to see but yeah he, he tried to say it was the hard way but i don't think it was but yeah uh, I, I always heard that at tv tapings there is a camera right at the back of the arena that records literally everything anyway i guess that could be used for like legal purposes if like a fan gets in the ring or something like that like did you ever have did you ever see that in person like a fan altercation uh it's funny actually that same match i was just talking about with savio in florida not in ww well wwf they i think i saw Maybe somebody tried to jump in the ring once or twice, but you don't see it very often. But yeah, I had one try to come in at me because uh, I was wrestling Savio. He was the heel, but I guess that's why I was a Savio fan. And um, this is during Los Boricuas time. So mm. uh, yeah, this guy tried to kick him in the head one time, and then Savio just laughed and jumped out and pulled the guy out of the ring to make sure he didn't get killed. Because you come in the ring, all bets are off. You're in trouble. So yeah, but no, I, I didn't agree see it very often. Um, when when you wrestled the indies, like, did it make it more? Was it more comforting when you would go to a town and there would be someone that you knew from a WWF show there as well? I mean, did you know in advance as well that you were going to be there with, say, Savio or Bundy? I know you didn't get along with Bundy, but um. Did that make you would always have an idea who was on the card? Yeah. And in this thing in Florida, it was the guys I was working with down in Florida after I left WWF. So Mm. um, we purposely we brought in Savio to work with me. We brought in D'Lo Brown to work with somebody. I think there I think uh, I think Lita was on this card and she wasn't Lita yet. She hadn't even gone up to WWF yet. It was one of her last independent shots before she went up and worked for Vince. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, she worked that show. Dan Severin was there. It was just an interesting show, but you always know ahead of time who's going to be there. And, you know, if you get along with them or not, you know, you got to kind of figure out how you're going to interact or deal with them. But yeah, Bundy was, Bundy was always interesting. It's like, Oh, every time I walk in a locker room, it's always the same with Bundy. He goes, Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I can imagine. Last time I saw, interesting. The last time I saw him was at uh, icons in Philadelphia. And this was after I had already started telling stories and I, he friend requested me on Facebook and I accepted his friend request because I don't give a shit if he reads what I say about him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he walked by, he looked kind of sick. He looked a lot smaller than he was. And he obviously looked older, but he walked by and me and somebody were talking about old school and he heard the word old school and stopped in his tracks, turned and looked, he saw me and he just went, Oh Jesus Christ. And he just kept walking. And that was the last thing. <laughs> Last thing I ever heard Bundy say, last time I ever saw him. Uh, I, I guess that's quite fitting for your entire relationship. Especially, yeah, for our relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, when you were doing the indies, then, was there, like, a standard of indie that you just wouldn't do? Like, it was the, what was the worst independent show that you ever did in terms of, like, you were wrestling in a backyard or in, like, a barn or something? Like Man, the worst thing I ever did, <laughs> it was one of those things it, it was probably one of these little companies i worked with down in florida i can't remember if it was before or after because i had a garbage can with me because I, I was using that gimmick but i can't remember if i was trying if i was still rocco gibraltar before wwf or if it was duke the dumpster it was probably after duke the dumpster but we did a show for a kid's birthday party out in the middle of a park it was a it was this big park down in florida and it was literally out in the middle of a field and uh they pulled a rider truck a box truck up next to it because it had all the supplies and stuff in it and the beer and all this stuff and that that's where we had to get dressed <laughs> and changed <laughs> so we did our we did it we did the show and i just remember afterwards the payday was shit nobody got really any money and i stuffed as many cases of beer into my garbage can as i could and i lugged i dragged that garbage can off and went home with beer uh -huh. Yeah, so the can, the can came in handy for that kind of stuff then. Um. Oh yeah, if I wanted to steal like some beers or something from the locker room, yeah, shit, yeah. When you with with WWF, did you like steal from the hotel rooms? Did you like take towels and stuff? Or? I'll tell you what the general rule was. No, you really wouldn't steal much, except what guys generally had is we had one. A lot of us would have one hotel towel, and what we would do is we would take that hotel towel from a hotel and take it to the next show, the next town, and use it at the show, take it back to the new hotel, and trade it out with a new <laughs> hotel towel. So uh -huh. we would have this long chain of hotel towels we would use along along the way. Uh, that's kind of how we did it. That's pretty cool. So in, t like in terms of uh, merchandise, then, were you just given free stuff like t-shirts because they made everything from towels to mugs and stuff like were you given stuff that you could get practical use out of like jackets or t-shirts or whatever yeah wwf would generally be pretty good about giving us stuff uh God, well, i can't remember what his name was but uh, the merchandise guy at the time but yeah you could oh, always barry get... barry didinsky i shouldn't know no, that. it was before <laughs> barry. it was uh i mean barry came in too but it was somebody else that Barry was the guy on camera trying to sell stuff, but the guy in the back next to the big 
you know, containers that held the shirts and stuff. Right. I swear his name escapes me. I can see his face, but he was always real cool. You know, they could give us stuff because they loved us walking around wearing WWF hats and shirts. You know, we were walking billboards, basically. So you'd make a a killing on that shit now if you still had it. Yeah, I know. I see it. I used to wear it out, though, man. I would wear it constantly (laughs) till it was just falling off in shreds. But um, Barry Horowitz uh, posted because he was give, I think he was more he would keep his stuff I guess more um, and he had a, a a water bottle from that um, that baseball game with the WWF logo on it and stuff and I think he sold it for like three hundred dollars and I'm just like holy shit that's oh, wow yeah yeah Barry was smarter about the business all the way around than most people I'll just say that he was definitely smarter than me but you know Barry yeah he was a smart guy he. Apparently held on to a lot of that stuff, and yes, it has a lot of value today. Absolutely. Yeah, amongst nerds like me, basically. Um, so we've like, um, oh, actually, I tried to find Barry Tadinsky for the podcast because I was like, right, no one's interviewed him. I'll be the first. Um, yeah, what he's doing. He turned. I think he went on to be like a poker champion, like a national poker champion. Uh, that's oh, all. Wow. I, that's all I could find on him. Um, Everyone will be searching for Barry Dentinsky now. I wonder if he kept all that stuff that he uh, he advertised. Did he work for WWF or was he brought in as an outsider, like a QVC kind of? He was more of a QVC kind of guy, but I, I mean, I think he worked for the company for a while. I do remember uh, this is a funny story uh, to bring it up. Uh, um, he was doing the on-camera spots, trying to sell merchandise, and they thought it was a good idea or whatever. And, uh, you know, times were tough. They weren't selling a lot of merchandise or anything. You know, nobody was making money. And I just remember Kevin or Diesel, Kevin Nash, Diesel, walking into the locker room one day and exclaiming, you know, my quarterly merchandise checks are $5,000 less ever since Barry Dodinsky took over. (laughs) And I'm going, I'm going, $5,000 less? I'm like not even getting merchandise checks. I'm not even getting loyal. I'm getting no royalties, nothing, because they didn't have any due to dumpster. And I'm going, fuck, I'd be happy to make $500, let alone 5000 less than what you used to make. Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, it was always kind of an arrogant kind of thing like that that would – he, you know, he said that shit. I was like, God damn, man, how much are these motherfuckers making around here? Yeah. But uh, he blamed it on Barry Dodinsky at the time. He said numbers were dropping. And I'm guessing Barry did not last <laughs> much longer. After I don't think. He, yeah, I don't think he <laughs> lasted very long. I remember he was he was trying to sell these pogs, and it was me playing against somebody else with these I old WWF. Oh my god, it's a fucking horrible thing. And I'm just like, well, this this is my WrestleMania moment. But you know, or whatever pay-per-view it was, because I didn't get any hardly singles matches at well shit, I got one singles match with Triple H. But you know, it was always in you, you said it right, I think. QVC, that was kind of the style of Barry Dodensky trying to sell merchandise, and it didn't work too well. It just didn't work for the way they did things. You know, he didn't which is good, which is what those people should do. They should stay as far fucking away from the wrestlers as they can because otherwise they get into trouble. But yeah, he kept his distance. Very smart man. Uh and uh it just yeah, I just don't think it worked too well for very long. But that was just bad all the way around. And I don't know, maybe after that, who was it? Like 
Michael Hayes as Doc Hendricks comes in and he's kind of yeah. doing some of that stuff. And my, my friend Alex, who's like a, you know, he's a country music fan and he's like a real sort of cowboy and everything. He weeps every time he sees Doc Hendricks knowing Michael Hayes, <laughs> you know, no, the it's interesting. And I, and I have yet to hear somebody ask him this question, Michael Hayes, Michael Hayes came in for that spot. And I remember him at TV and I don't know if somebody, they were ribbing him or what. He still had long hair. It was before he became Doc Hendricks, before he got hired. He came in for what looked like a tryout, and he put on tights and boots. He was standing there. If I remember correctly, <laughs> Michael Hayes was standing next to me wearing tights and wrestling boots. And I'm going, they're going to make this motherfucker try out? What the hell's going on here? Yeah. And I don't think I ever saw him wrestle. I don't think he tried out as a wrestler. And the next thing I know, they cut his hair off and made him Doc Hendricks. But I'm still, I'm, I've said that on a few podcasts, and I'm waiting for somebody to ask Michael Hayes if that truly happened because that's the way I remember it. But of course, shit, who knows? My brain was fried. But no, I swear, I remember him in, in damn tights and boots, like he was going to have a tryout, like somebody was ribbing him. I can kind of imagine it because the the story that um, Matt and Jeff Hardy uh, told in their biography was when Hayes was managing them for a little while, uh, Michael got the call that he was going to be taken off TV and he was so upset that, you you know, because he, he was having a match here and there sort of thing. He had a really good match against Tracy Smothers, which was on one of the B shows that like no one remembers, but it was so out of, you know, not 1999 WWF in terms of it, you know, presentation of having these two old Southern guys have a wrestling match, you know. Um, but Vince McMahon hates more than anything in the world is that Southern <laughs> wrestling. Yes. Put, put it on the B show, the international syndication of the B show, you know. Um, yeah. So I can imagine him thinking that he was going to go there to uh, actually, yeah, to wrestle. But, I mean, the story that I heard was because Vince was like, right, shave it off. But he stood in the room to make sure that he got it cut because that was the only way that he was going to get that job. Um, it, it's like the Tom, uh, the Tom Pritchard thing. Um, he tells the story that um, the, the bodies were gone by that point and um, they needed someone to be a partner for Candido. Yeah. So they yeah. called him and he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So Vince was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and then he was like, no, wait a minute. I'll do it. I'll, you know, um, yeah, but I, I guess you kind of did what you had to do at that point. Yeah. Depending on who you were and whether you had the bargaining position to refuse something, uh, most guys didn't. And a lot of us were, you know, newer guys. A lot of us kind of came out of nowhere and didn't have perceivably many options. So, when they said do something, you would do it. Now, you know, me with my haircut, I actually was pitching uh, before the Triple H thing. I was pitching a heel turn where I wanted to cut my hair and change my appearance and not be a garbage man anymore. Just be Duke Drosy. And it was just interesting the way it happened because I was sitting in there with Jim Ross and Vince McMahon. And it was the first time I ever sat in a meeting with Jim Ross and. When I immediately, when I said, I want to change my appearance, Jim Ross goes, well, how about this? How about right. as part of this angle, we have him jump you, Triple H jump you and cut your hair, and that'll heat up the angle. And I just remember looking around the room, and I knew what was going on. I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. And I said, I was willing to do it as long as they gave me some form of revenge where I didn't just get killed off. You know, cut my hair and pin me straight up 
And Vince promised. He goes, yes, of course, we're going to, you know, do this and that. And, you know, they were saying, he was saying everything I wanted to hear. Uh, but it was just interesting the way Jim Ross jumped on that one thing that I said, I want to change my appearance, cut my hair and become a heel. And as soon as I said that, he's like, Hey, cut your hair on TV. <laughs> do, do you feel that there was like a, a slight bit of pressure to be able to come up with ideas in front of Vince immediately to kind of like prove your worth to the company? Like if you were a Jim Ross or a JJ Dillon or whoever. Oh, yeah. Those guys were always under pressure. Uh, you know, people say they were yes men or however you want to say it. But yes, they had to come up with stuff. And yes, they had to prove that, you know, their worth. Uh, so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways they were constantly having to come up with ideas. Like you look at Bruce Pritchard right now. He's just got him finagled himself back into the executive producer position of both SmackDown and Raw. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. You know, he's doing something right. Or at least he's, you know, he's portraying that he's doing something right. But, you know, uh, that's kind of just... how it worked. And it was kind of, and sometimes it was on a whim where Vince would say, this guy's out, this guy's in. And it was the same with wrestlers, obviously, but it was the same with his office people. And uh, yeah, they were constantly trying to prove their worth. I think that was a good way to put it actually. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you know, I, I do like Bruce from, you know, from his, what he does on podcasts, all that kind of thing. And I know that he, you know, I know what he was responsible for, for his long tenure with WWF and stuff like that. But just considering the names that they still have under contract in WWF, that they would put Bruce in charge of both shows is like, it seems a bit insane to me because I don't think he's really improved SmackDown since taking it over. I know that they're working in difficult times because of the coronavirus and everything, but... Um, I think Bruce Pritchard has always done a very good job of keeping himself very close to Vince McMahon throughout the process when he was there. I don't know what the situation was that made him leave before, but he was always very good when he was there. He was always very good at literally being Vince's right-hand man. And uh, I think when you're kind of in a – and this is just speculation and opinion on my part. But when you've got yourself in a position like that and other people that are supposed to be executive producers or in charge of some way of some creative are starting to falter – it's real easy to position yourself and say, hey, Vince, why don't we try it this way? I could come in and we could do – and boom, all of a sudden Vince – or all of a sudden Bruce Pritchard has smacked down in Bravo. Mm. That's yeah, no, it, is, it is crazy. Well, the, um, just a, a few more questions. Um, when uh, Jim Ross – when JJ left in 96, were you still there? Like did you notice a difference – when Jim Ross took over as head of talent relations, or were you kind of gone by that point? Cause it was kind of very, I left right before JJ left, I think, because I remember, you know, I had just signed a new contract and, uh, there for a few months of it. And I think I had like eight or nine months left on this one year contract. And I was pissing Vince off so much complaining all the time. I mean, first he said he was going to send me to Memphis, I mean, a thousand a week, which at that point I I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. Cause that was a lot more money than I was making. Yeah. I wasn't making shit. Uh, the problem though, is I, I said to Vince, I wanted it in writing. And I think that was the <laughs> fucking nail in the coffin for me. Yeah. And, um, at a TV, not too long thereafter, 
Jerry Briscoe came up and said, Vince said, you can go on home. Anyway, I just remember saying, well, I expect a full release. When I got home, I got a call from J.J. Dillon. He was still there. And I said, J.J., I was just really pissed off. I'm gonna, And I was trying to maneuver like I wanted to come back eventually. But I just said, you can leave me on contract. I'm not going to do anything anyway right now. And um, afterwards, maybe we can just uh, talk and we'll see where we want to go from there. Well, shortly thereafter, J.J. left. And I remember J.J. was the one I talked to when I went to WCW and tried to get in there. Uh, I tried to pull a slick move there. But, yeah, J.J. was there. So me leaving, J.J. left, I think, right after me. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting. You talked about uh, Jim Ross taking over talent relations. Um, I think he was maneuvering into that position before J.J. left. Because in that meeting, it was just weird to me how much he had to say i was like why is jim ross here and why is he saying so much um because up to that point i thought he was just gonna do some announcing sometimes but yeah yeah makes you, the, the makes moves you, were being made and make, yeah it makes you wonder i mean literally because the the story is is that jj was so sick at that point that he was trying to sell his house in connecticut and he wasn't going to leave until the house had been sold so like jim ross could have known at that time or you know apparently jj the story that i heard was jj went into visitor's office and he was like look i'm gone uh, and he's like where are you going pal are you gonna get a sandwich or something he's like no i'm going and uh vince like just did not compute that someone would like leave like that and he, he upped and went and um that, yeah that was kind of the end of JJ, I mean, how was he to you? Uh, JJ. JJ was great. JJ yeah. was great. I mean, he was he was yeah the head of talent relations, and he did that job very well. Um, but he was always very nice and respectful. You know, I can't say that about everybody uh, yeah. that worked in that office. You know, especially some of those road agents. But um, JJ was always very nice to me and very respectful. More recently, because um, you had matches uh, on the indie scene, so were those the first matches that you had? Uh, since losing your foot, well, I mean, you are from the knee down, aren't you? Like sort of. Uh, from the calf down, yeah. Just ma- mainly the foot is all gone from. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was those were like some of the first matches I got. It kind of got back into. Um. Um. You know, I was doing. People were bringing me all over the United States to do stuff. Um. But I was wrestling here locally some, too. When I didn't have anything going on, I could always find a weekend show here locally near me. And I was doing those shows. And uh, But the stump, the leg that is in the prosthetic, uh, started to get an injury on the end of it from the wear and tear. And it ended up getting infected really bad. And uh, back in November of last year, I had to have a surgery to remove the a big abscess that was infected from the end of it and i'm still healing from that i haven't had a leg since i've been riding around on this knee walker it's like a little scooter that you put your knee on and kind of ride around on because i don't i can't put a leg on until it finishes healing so but yeah i was wrestling but i don't think i'm gonna go back to full like active wrestling i might do shows where i do autograph sessions and then maybe i do like a a run in or actually a walk in <laughs> where yeah. I walk out and hit somebody over the head with a garbage can, but that'll be it probably. See that that's kind of a, an area of like sort of health care that, I mean, certainly this country doesn't look at in terms of like amputees um, because they think, Oh, well you, you can work because 
you know, you are still able to walk with like a prosthetic or something like that, but they don't think about, you know, um, our, our country or our government doesn't think about giving people jobs that, not wrestling, but you know, like may involve them walking around a lot, and then they end yeah. up with like abscesses on the legs and infections and stuff like that. And I've heard stories about that, and um, you know, because of that, there are people who are quite and you know should be entitled to benefits or anything like that and don't get it because they're not seen as unhealthy enough you know on the government side and it's like fuck I, like i've got one leg you know like how, yeah how, especially how here in like yeah here in the united states it seems like somebody that you know eats so much food and gets big and fat and overweight and gets diabetes and smokes cigarettes to the point where they have copd they can get on disability faster than somebody that actually had their leg cut off well, um, you know what and, you know what you need so to do <laughs> i need to start smoking and eating no i just you know and the funny thing is is i applied for disability after right after the leg was taken because that's when i was still going through all the legal stuff and i didn't know if i was going to be able to work again or not yeah. but then towards the when i finished the program i went through the drug court program uh it was obvious they wanted to hire me and i still had this kind of open thing trying to get into disability so I went in and just re, re I just took back uh, or retracted my uh, plea or my uh, application for disability. I said, no, I don't want to be on disability. I'm going to go ahead and go back to work. Um, but it hasn't been easy. There's real, there's, there's good days. And then there's bad, there's, there's challenging days with the leg and other things. Um, and having a, a, an injury ravaged body from the professional wrestling years doesn't help when you're not walking exactly straight uh the back problems and stuff like that but it is what it is man i i just i've learned to deal with a lot um i just deal with it i don't you know uh i'm not gonna just sit down and give up i'm just gonna keep going that's a large part of what i do now i just keep pushing forward man and working hard as long as i can i'm going to keep doing it and as soon as this thing heals up apparently i'm with some new people that are going to get me a real high tech kick ass leg. It's it's gonna be good. It may have a Kung Fu grip and a shotgun attached to it. So it's gonna be really good. Well I was gonna say that could be your Lex Luger foreign object under the forearm. Yeah. You know, you know you a could... shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with the type of work you're doing, are you considered frontline worker at the moment? Like are you continuing to work through all of this pandemic? Well, we a lot a lot of stuff we did we worked from home. Uh, I don't think we were necessarily essential. However, what they did need us for is a large part of our job is supervision of people. I mean, we supervise the people that are in our program. It's like a very strict probation, you know. But when this pandemic hit, they started letting all kinds of people out of jail just because they wanted to drop the numbers because the jails were overcrowded. And when they did that, as kind of a side thing, we see we already used GPS ankle monitor bracelets and they came to us uh, and we took about 20 or 30 people that came out of jail and they were not in our program, but we were responsible for watching them. So there was often days where I was driving all over the county and even further here in Tennessee to go deal with GPS monitor issues that people were having um, as part of our job. So in that respect, I was still working, uh, but we tried to do it as much as we could from home, but there's always something to do. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And you're generally 
are you coping okay <laughs> during this? Because I'm losing my mind, like to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, but you're, are you you're generally um, coping through all of this uh, pandemic, not just health wise, but like sort of, you know, mentally, you know, with like, sort of like you know being at home a lot and all that. Because I can imagine you want to get out a lot more. Well, it was interesting because when I had this surgery back in November, I was laid up. I was home pretty much in bed for three months. Uh, it was a major surgery on the end of this thing. And, um, and then right after that, uh, the pandemic hit <laughs> You know, I went back <laughs> for a couple of weeks and then bam, the pandemic. But I was already in a frame of mind from laying at home for those three months where I said, no matter what happens, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to continue to stay positive because I know there will be an end to this. Eventually I'm going to come out the other end and I will be so much happier and stronger when I do, but it's been, there's been very difficult times, but it is what it is. I keep telling myself that it's like, I'm going to get through this and it's going to get better eventually. But yeah, you know, all this kind of wrapped up. It's been one big freaking shit party of Holy hell and pandemic and quarantine. And, and I'm the ultimate, skeptic and pessimist i'm like this is all bullshit <laughs> everybody's still out there running around the streets doing their thing here in town going to stores and blah 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 you know and i and i knew it was a real uh virus but i didn't think i was just kind of watching the, the way the media handled it and everything it was just like eh, i don't think this is bad as they're saying i think the big component to the coronavirus the COVID 19 was it was kind of like a flu, except it had that component where it attacked your respiratory system. That's the big problem. Because when older people that are weak, they get, you know, if they get pneumonia, they're done. Uh, and that that's what I think they were finding was people that were very, had weak immune systems and stuff were catching this stuff in their lungs. And that, that's what ran this panic through the country and through the world, actually. Um, but I'm also, like I said, I'm the ultimate pessimist. I'm like, ah, oh, this is bullshit. Come on, we need to go back to work. People are losing money. And well, if, so, if, yeah. anyone, if anyone's listening to this in six months' time, we'll find out if uh, you were right or not. <laughs> we could all be gone. I'm gonna be right. <laughs> yeah, right. The whole world. We just we, we we just spiral into this fucking zombie apocalypse. You go. Well, there you go, Duke. Good good going, buddy. Yeah, it's it's a gimmick. Juke the zombie. It's grows a the work. Ass, you know. <laughs> I, I put on one of my Facebook pages, I put hashtag Corona was a work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm really glad that you're staying happy and healthy and everything, because like I can imagine, it, you know, with your past and everything, you know, it, are you you? I'm guessing no temptation to slip back into booze and pills and stuff. I mean, no, if, if it's if it's good. Armageddon, if it's Armageddon, though, fuck it, you know, <laughs> might as well. Let's all just, let's all right? just, we'll all just fuck no, on the I've streets and really take good. drugs. And, you know, yeah, yeah, this time I got really good at uh, <laughs> what they call recovery. You know, yeah. it's I had to do it the right way, but no, not we had. Well, let me put it this way: in our program, we drug test a lot of people uh, several times a week. And they shut down our offices. You know, all the government, we're, we're, we're a government entity. And they shut us down as far as uh, in-person meetings. So we stopped drug testing. And we just told everybody, listen, we're not going to drug test you until this thing's over. But when it's over, you're going to come in and you're going to take a hair test, you know, like a hair follicle. And that goes way back. Right. And we 
we still had people kind of mess up and do different drugs and stuff that we ended up catching. But um, this kind of a situation can, if you're not prepared, it can throw somebody with drug addiction issues into a tailspin. But man, I've ever since they came and busted me, once I got physically clean, I've been working my ass off to always be prepared for any situation uh, so that I don't fuck up and slip back and start using again because uh, I don't think I can afford to do it again. And in terms of losing everything this time would be really devastating. Uh, and I'm still coming back from the last one. But yeah, you know, it is what it is. We, we, uh, that's one thing I can't do. And, uh, you know, I watch people around me doing all the crazy shit they do. And I, that's, that's the way they handle it. That's fine. Oh, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you um, and I'm sure everyone listening will be glad to hear that you're doing that you're doing well as well. Um, before we do wrap up, um, because you said that you watched uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida, like growing up, um, oh, but not growing up, but I guess as you were, well, you I was take- growing up too, but I was watching it as I was breaking into the business as well. But yeah, I was watching it when I was growing up. Yeah. So, so were you watching it before Kevin Sullivan came in? Because I know how much he kind of turned Florida on its head when he came in with the whole army of darkness and everything like yeah, how much so awesome yeah um that, i was favorite, watching it but that's one, yeah that's one of the first things i remember was kevin sullivan that's one of the first real hot angles i remember was kevin sullivan coming in then he brought in the purple haze and it was like who are these people and holy shit um that was some hot stuff um but i was watching it before that but I don't, you know, I don't remember as much before that just because that was so good. Kevin was so good uh, in the way he put that together. I got a real good friend down there now that was in that whole deal. The guy that played Abuda Dean, uh, Jeff Gardner, he was Abuda Dean, the snake master, the guy that, yeah, he was in there. Yeah, he's a very good friend of mine. We worked together a lot on the independence after all that. But yeah, that was a very good angle. That's really cool. That that is really. Who was the guy who Kevin Sullivan brainwashed into thinking he was Dusty Rhodes? Was it Bob Roop? I know Bob Roop was part of that thing. I don't remember. It might have been. It, it, it shaved, just seemed... shaved half of his head, just like Luna did. Luna shaved half of her head, and I think Bob Roop shaved the other half of his head. I was just. Um, I was I just. I was just talking to someone about the uh, the angle where Luna plays a um a reporter. From the yes, local press. That's slap. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> if yeah, you watch the if you watch the angle though, when because I mean she takes that punch and the that. way the way she takes it, her legs just fly up in the air and you see her shoes go flying. <laughs> and it's like it's a mix of like absolute seriousness and complete ridiculousness as well. Yeah. Like the, the Kevin Sullivan stuff tread trod that line incredibly well in florida um it really did push the boundaries and like if anyone hasn't seen any of that stuff youtube has a good amount of it but like the uh, mark loon is uh purple haze watching him come out from the water and everything and, Amazing. Uh, it, it's kind of because the video quality of it is so grainy now uh and it wasn't cleaned up or anything so that really adds to this kind of horror b-movie kind of feel to it and uh yeah no brilliant brilliant stuff um yeah no that's great so um we've went i mean we were, we were gonna go the hour broadway uh they give us an extra half hour to um you know please the fans and um i don't think anything's been settled yet um so they're okay. gonna they're gonna ring the bell and then they'll put us back in the garden next month for like the rematch and um 
it'll be the same finish because th- did you find that like if you ever had to do like the same place three months in a row whatever did you just have the same finish that you, in the same match and everything like that because i've heard those stories where like chief j strongbow would give out you know the same kind of thing every you know every month and the crowd would just fart on it like well, you tried not to do that. There was a, a general rule. I think it was 150 to 200 miles. Uh, if it was under 150 miles between the towns, you had to do something different. You had to come up with something different. Um, one of the great experiences I had was after I left WWF, I went and wrestled for Big Auto in Germany and uh, Austria. And uh, when you worked for Otto Vons, you worked the same building every night for 30 to 60 days straight. <laughs> so you got to come up with all kinds of stuff. I mean, you're not wrestling the same person, but you're going to wrestle that same person a bunch of times. And man, you got to come up with all kinds of different ideas. Um, so that was an experience because yeah, in WWF, man, we would do these loops where you'd be like 200 miles between towns and you just go to the next town and do the same show uh, or the same match, you know? Uh, and a lot of guys had their routine, so to speak, to, to do all the same stuff uh, at different times of the match. But, um, you tried not to, but you know, some of us were lazy and like me, <laughs> no, you, you, you're not putting yourself in that category. Huh? Yeah. I was just like, yeah, let's do the same shit we did last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, well on that note, um, well, that's the thing though. Like at least this was different to the last podcast that we did. Um, absolutely a hundred percent. And now I, I can wait another three years before I come back. Right. Oh, uh, well, hope, hopefully, it's <laughs> hopefully, not, not. Hopefully, it's, hopefully it's not that long. Well, that's the thing. We've been like relaunching a lot of the older shows on the uh, BBG uh, podcast network that like I'm lucky enough to be a part of now. Uh, so we're going to relaunch the, the Rumble Watch Along probably in January. It makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, we should have done it in the January just gone. But like the numbers have kind of gotten a lot better for it. Like because, again, I, I was like the indiest of indie podcasters, I guess, I guess. Um, you know, like yeah. so how I was able to get like any guests um, without lying about numbers and stuff. You know, it, it just it fully came down to how nice the people were who decided to do the podcast, including yourself. Um, but now, uh, as part of the BBG uh, podcast network, we um, we have a full range of shows, and uh, I I, can't, I think I take care of the old school end of it, I guess, <laughs> which is like I'm very comfortable in this area you know i can't do ring of honor reviews <laughs> like i don't have yeah, no. <laughs> um like when you were doing uh the last uh your last podcast and we'll talk about what you're going to be doing going forward um to wrap up um did you find it was it kind of exhausting watching all this new shit that you weren't like really into well see i didn't really do i didn't really get into that i didn't i mean one time we did a uh, watch along i think we did like a jeez uh, maybe it was a, it was a royal rumble we did a watch along there at that same studio uh that i had done a watch along with you and uh man i was so bored and it was i don't even know man it was so many hours long i lost track i was like good lord when did these things become seven hours yeah or whatever it was i was like it's ridiculous and they were telling me that wrestlemania was going to be six or seven hours or something i was like this is ridiculous because I don't watch the new stuff. I really don't, man. If I hear something, like somebody's people are really talking about something that happened, I'll look at YouTube. But I don't watch the shows. I don't even have TV. And I don't have the network on the internet or wherever you get it. And I just don't. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll catch a match here and there of an AEW match or something. Or But, you know, 
we were doing stuff based on road stories and, and other kind of subjects when I was doing that podcast. So it was just different. Yeah, I mean, with a lot of the stuff, if if I watch anything new now, it, it kind of does have to be brought to my attention. Or if it's something that has a connection to old school wrestling, like I'll watch Brian Pillman Jr. like whenever I can, because like, I loved his dad so much. And it, I, I think he realizes that a lot of people are going to watch him because of his dad. And I think he's not trying to shy away from that, but also he's getting out of the large shadow that he, you know, um, cast. But, you know, there's, in all companies, I guess, you know, there's something that piques my interest every so often, but I watch so much old stuff. Like, I, I don't know how, like, not just uh, WWF as well, like, you know, any territories that I can, if it, not everything um, was my taste, but that I think that was the beauty of the really old stuff that every territory was uh, was different. I mean, did you kind of watch everything that you could get your hands on at the time, or were you kind of accustomed to Florida and would Memphis? Have I watched seen everything. Different? Yeah, I watched everything I get my hands on. Man, it was it was. I could, I would watch Florida. I would watch Texas. We were getting Texas, the Von Erichs, quite a bit. You know, WCCW. Uh, so I watched that quite a bit. Uh, and I would also watch the NWA turning into WCW show out of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, those were the main things I was watching back in those days. That's cool. Well, um, in terms of uh, going forward, uh, you mentioned that you are starting a new uh, podcast venture. Do you want to let everyone uh, know about that? Yeah, I'm working with this guy, Avi Klein, and he's got a podcast he had been doing for a long time called Wrestling uh, With Anything But. And it's kind of like, he would interview wrestlers, but they would talk about everything but wrestling. Uh, and that's what drew me to him the first time I did it. Anyway, he is getting himself into a situation where he's got a lot of podcasts uh, going as well. He's doing one with me. It's going to be called Road to Recovery, and it will be on Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Central Time, which is my time, Central in Tennessee. But 5 p.m. Central, it's starting probably the first Friday in July. I want to say July 11th is the number that sticks in my head, but I don't know if that's a Friday. But it's right around there. Whatever the Friday is in that week, it will start, and it's called Road to Recovery. And it's not. It's going to be about, obviously, recovery from substance abuse and alcoholism and things like that. But it's also recovery from any challenging situations that people have come back from in life and uh and and made a, a comeback and we're gonna have a lot of guests and heroic stories but yeah this guy Avi is working with me he's got a podcast with glacier he's got a podcast oh, with so don cool. morocco he's got man he's got so many uh different people he's working with and they're all they're not necessarily wrestling podcasts that's the great thing about this guy it you know it's a lot like we were just talking man we were today it was a lot different than the first podcast we did um it wasn't hey where did you get trained hey where did you you know uh, who's your favorite wrestler or who's your favorite opponent you know all the same questions now he kind of took this different turn and we talked about all kinds of things. Um, so when he came to me with this idea of doing a podcast, my, the first thing I said was, yeah, not a wrestling podcast. We could do recovery. Now it'll have wrestling and wrestling stories and even guests or people I know that came through the business that faced adversity and, and came out the other end successfully. Or There's so many different angles 
that we're going to reach. But yes, it will be. It's wrestling with anything. But the name of the podcast is Road to Recovery. And uh, it will be on Fridays at 5 p.m. Central Time here in the U.S. Um, and I'm still doing all the, the other social media stuff, man. You know, I'm still telling my stories on on Facebook a lot. I'm doing Facebook. I'm doing my trash cam live here uh, on Saturday evenings at 6 o'clock, which I'll be doing right after I get off of here. And, yeah, have, uh, have I kept you too long? <laughs> no. Okay. I don't even know what time it is here, but. No, man, we were, it was three o'clock when we started. So we haven't gone three hours, but, um, I'm doing that. I'm doing, uh, stuff on Instagram, stuff on Twitter, not so much, but I'm getting better at it. Um, a lot of fans are coming out, uh, for a lot of the merchandise and stuff, you know, like you said, the interest in the old school, uh, selling pictures, selling trash can lids, selling t-shirts. Uh, I got all kinds of stuff going on, but I'm just, the main thing is I'm loving the interaction with the fans i'm just having fun with it this time uh so that's kind of where i'm at now that's amazing and you know not everyone has that second chance as well so yeah i can tell that you you're one of the nicest people for interaction and you've got a lot of time for your fans as well and um, and the podcast i can't wait for that that's gonna be incredible like a podcast that serves a purpose you know unlike mine yeah. which is like just a, <laughs> it's um what would you call it self-masturbatory i get to talk to wrestlers <laughs> <laughs> i'm very aware of this you <laughs> know oh, that's terrible that's not I, true come on I get, to, I get to ask the questions that like nobody would bother asking i think that's <laughs> well that's the and thing nobody that, that wants I, to well that's the thing like i kind of I, I totally understand that with every wrestler you know you were on steve austin's podcast and you did the hannibal thing and you know uh, podcast with you know larger numbers i i have faith in the wrestling podcast audience that they have listened to you talk about your most famous stories etc so i've got to dig a little deeper like you know if you could be a breed of dog uh which uh which dog would you be have you ever crapped yourself in the ring? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, if you could be a breeder dog, which uh, dog would you be? Holy shit, what would I be? Man, <laughs> I don't know. I'd be a damn, I don't know, a Great Dane or a pit bull. There you go. There you go. See, you wouldn't get that on any other podcast, Steve. There also. you go. Yeah, where's my awards and millions of dollars and et cetera? Um, <laughs> it's hardcore journalism, you see, <laughs> that like, you wouldn't get from you know some schmuck like steve austin don't tell him exactly. I said that because you've got his number so you know. yeah who he um, ever beat <laughs> <laughs> you beat him though didn't you on a show uh i don't think so did you not oh sorry i didn't want to no, i refused to job to him is what i did <laughs> that is, that is true <laughs> so i got that going for me uh-huh <laughs> so did, did you ever see anyone um do anything nasty with uh henry godwin's slot bucket because i heard i've heard stories uh, that i've seen people on... blow some snot rockets in it and spit in it i don't i don't think anybody pissed in it but they, yeah when it was going on sunny some people blew snot in it and shit like that i was like leave me the fuck out of this uh, i mean there's the story of x-pac shitting in a chinese food and mixing it in and uh she ate it and uh yeah, that's I don't not... know if they ate it, but I know it was. I remember, yeah, in Germany they they crapped in her food and covered it up and put it back in. And when they got back to the hotel, they opened it up and they realized it was in there. It was freaking disgusting, and they were ready to go home, man. They were ready to be done. And it sounds like it. It does sound like it. Well, look, um, yeah, I shan't I sh keep you any longer because once you've asked what type of dog you would want to be, I think the like. 
the podcast it's all downhill from there. It's all downhill from there. Um, but yeah, no, hopefully we can do this again. And um, I, I can't wait to listen uh, to the new podcast, uh, Wrestling With Anything But. Um, and I will post links wherever you want me to post links. And um, yeah, I, I have a feeling that that's going to be a bit of an emotional roller coaster every week. I look like, forward to it. That's the way I like it, man. Putting mm-hmm. it out there, being real and truthful. Absolutely. Great stuff. Okay, well, Mike. Duke the Dumpster Drossy, Mike Drossy, thank you very much for uh, being a part of uh, Turnchuckle on BBG Wrestling. And uh, my cat has been making several um, cameos throughout this uh, podcast. So if anyone was wondering who that was, that was Mango. Uh, <laughs> she's trying to she's trying to steal my spotlight, you see. Um, so yeah, um, thank you Excellent. again. Yeah, we will talk again soon. All right, thank you, my friend. Yeah.